For those who are visitors, um, for Fitzers who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we're going to look over this next period. Jonathan's going to march around walls and knock down cardboard boxes. If you don't know what that means, you should have been here last week. Um, he's going to take us through colorful characters in the scriptures, and I'm looking at the liturgy. What do we do on a Sunday morning? Why do we do it? Are we missing things? So I started um, looking at our gathering and our call to worship a couple of weeks ago by um, telling a story of how recently at an event, um, after some very um, sensitive leading of worship, uh, someone got up and said, well, now we've had the warm-up, let's get on to the main event. Are the songs we've been singing just a warm-up? I don't believe so. A couple of books. You would love it to be ten books. of a whole pile of books in worship and you get a chance during the week of uh, being a minister to, to read a, a couple or three, maybe if you're lucky. But the two books that have very much influenced this uh, thinking of mine uh, both come out of Calvin College, actually. James K.A. Smith, you know I'm going on and on about that, Desiring the Kingdom and his new one, Imagining the Kingdom. And also John Vitvlit, how do you pronounce that? Somebody um, will know. Um, who has a book called uh, Seeking Understanding Worship. Um, Smith quotes a few people as to the importance of the songs that we sing in worship. John Wesley, he had a belief that the hymnody was a body of practical divinity, a sung theology. Richard Mao, more contemporary than John Wesley, describing church songs as compacted theology. John Salliers, um, for the, the rock musicians among you, and I know there's a few fans, um, father of uh, Emily from the Indigo Girls, who's written uh, extensively uh, on worship and actually has written one of the books with Emily. He says that worship is a knitting of an embodied theology. No, knitting of an embodied theology happens whenever Christian congregations sing. Jamie Smith himself adds that Songs soak into the very core of our being, which is why music is an important constitutive element of our identity. And John Vitfleet himself says, to be a church musician, and by extension, a music editor, a hymnal committee member, or a church music professor, is to be a spiritual dietitian. We will come to his idea of songs as soul food where we get our title on our order of service later. My belief is that we carry songs. They go with us. Songs from our record players, which we're going back to, by the way. My CD collection is now worthless, but my old vinyl is worth a bob or two. Just go into one of the charity shops and try and buy one at 15 quid in a charity shop. And you'd probably come out with a suit and three dresses and um, enough books to do you for a year, but much a, a vinyl, a piece of vinyl will now cost you. But whatever we learned it on, maybe it was round the fire, maybe it was off the radio, maybe it was on vinyl, maybe it was on cassette, maybe it was on CD, maybe it's on download. Songs are everywhere and they come back to us at different times for different reasons. You don't have to go too far as a minister in visitation to just find those hymns that mean something to those 
who maybe have very little else in their way of communication with you. Hymns are still there. Frederick Buechner talks about one of his <clears throat> books is entitled Whistling in the Dark, which is when we're going through dark nights, you know, if you're walking through somewhere in the dark, BT9, um, you're walking down Maryville and it's dark, and you're feeling a wee bit, oh, dodgy area there. Um, sometimes we whistle in the dark just to have company, just to have strength, just to give us something that gets us through the walk in the darkness that we're vulnerable in. Songs do that. Whether they're pop songs or whether they're classical music or whether was it um, um, Bonhoeffer who the music came back to him when he was in prison and that was the time he realized the power of music and the transforming power of music. I am convinced that songs transform. I believe they have a power to transform socially and I believe they have a power to transform spiritually. If you go back to um, the civil rights movement of the 60s, you will find from Martin Luther King Jr. to the singers to the people on the lines, they would have said that the songs, the songs were the fuel, the strength, the soul of the movement. And here we are with songs so important to what we do, but maybe just seen as a warm-up. I've been to the planning of a service where people have said, well, let's just put a wee song in there because we could do a stand-up and a sit-down at that point. Is that how we've diminished the power of songs in worship? I... uh, I'm under no obligation, or no, um, not obligation, no illusion that you will not go home this afternoon humming my sermon. But we may go home and sometime in the week, sometime in the week, at some point, you may find yourself thinking, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Where did I get that? Where did that come from? Whose voice is that in my head? It's Bradley. Or one of the other songs that we sing. You will not carry in song or any economic words the sermon, but you could carry the theology, if we get it right, in the music and the songs we sing. You may hum them for the week, and it will catechize you. It will shape you. It will become your identity. It will be that which might be your whistling in the dark. Now, we have a bit of a dilemma it's 2013, and we've had this dilemma for a number of years, and there may be reasons for that that I can't go into in a sermon today. But let me just put us into the midst of the dilemma. Uh, a few years ago, while I was chaplain at Queen's, uh, I had the privilege of being part of the 150th anniversary service that Queen's uh, did in uh, St. Anne's Cathedral. I thought it was marvelous because... I was one of the four that put it together. We worked hard. We looked at hymns. We looked at liturgical prayers. We changed liturgical prayers. We rewrote liturgical prayers. We got the readings just right. We had control of everything but the sermon. And the guy who came to do the sermon did quite well as well. But in that order of services, you had it lined up. We were looking at that thinking, this is great. This is biblically right there. This is worshipful. This is prayerful, and it's contextualized in the whole education thing. Goodness, aren't we great as four chaplains? And on the night, 
it was proved that we were right. Oh, the slaps in the back we were getting and how people at the cathedral and the alumni and the establishment of Queen's just thought we'd got it exactly right. Oh, I was dressed in gowns and I put up with that, but there you go. A few happy songs when you go home can cleanse you from that. But uh, then, then, went down the back. Some of my students had come. I said, well, what did you think of that? We were bored out of our head. Now, it wasn't just your fringe student that comes to a 150th anniversary service in St. Anne's Cathedral of a Tuesday evening. What went wrong there? They were bored out of their heads. So, being on a bit of an adrenaline rush, I just brought the order of service out and said, what is boring about that? Did you see what it says there? Did you see that prayer? What about that read? That hymn? Yeah, but it was so... What happened there? What's the dilemma there? What is the problem there? Were they wrong? Did I have to just knock their heads and say, you shouldn't be bored with that? Because the truth is, the reality was, they were bored with it. It didn't reach. It didn't touch. It didn't minister. It missed. But it didn't with the establishment, the alumni. So what is going on there? Well, I've told you before about that sense with the students that I used to work with that they would come to me and they would say, Steve, need to talk to you. And I would say, I get paid for that. Let's go and have a coffee. And they would say, don't believe God loves me. Can't get it into my head. Can't get it into my heart. What do you mean you don't believe it? Sure, you come from a home. You come from a church. You hear it all the time. Did you not do a beach mission last summer where you told people that God loved them? What is the problem? Do you see where we are here? The words on the order of service they were getting in their lives. They knew the words of God's love, but it was not connecting. Wasn't getting there. Wasn't. This was a dilemma. And then Neil Postman's book, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, gave me that little insight. Those of us who learned in the linear, words on a page, words on a blackboard. It's mainly, I say mainly, not exclusively, but mainly the objective side of our head that sieves the information. Go into a school now, I went in on an open night with Caitlin, and they were learning French by taking penalty kicks against a whiteboard against the wall. Image dominated. I see them doing their homework and they're doing posters and I'm saying, is that for art? No, that's for geography. What? The image-dominated nature of how we learn today, well, Postman says, that changes things because suddenly it's the subjective side of our head that's the main instigator of getting the information. So we have this cultural dilemma. Some people call it postmodern theology or philosophy and all kinds of stuff and I don't want to go there because as soon as you say that, there's a CSI line drawn across it and we don't go into that area and we don't think about it or we dismiss it. I don't care what they call it. The reality of it is, 150th anniversary service, perfect in paper, perfect in words, not cutting it. So what do you do then? Because we do want a church, do we not, which reaches all of us. We want a family church. We want a church where the linear are met and where the subjective is met. And actually, without being too harsh, most of our ministry at this point is not reaching out to the octogenarian community around about much as we do. 
For the future of this church, we want to be a church that is relevant in what we do to a younger generation. And this is the generation with this dilemma. And we have this dilemma as we come to church worship songs. How do you deal with it? What has happened as a result of this is that many of the services that will be jam-packed with 20-somethings at this moment in time across the city will just have done 45 minutes of songs and then they will have 25 or 30 minutes of sermon and that will be it. They will think that's more imaginative and more creative. I don't know how they think that, but they do. Somebody said to me a couple of years, a couple of summers ago, I, I think... I think they would come to our church, but they believe too much in the benediction. (laughs) Well, wait till we get to the benediction in this series. That is so important. The welcome's important. The offering's important. The readings are important. The prayers are important. Not just 45 minutes of singing and somebody speaking and thinking that's it. That's not the deal. That's not what's going on. That's not healthy. But it hits here. Those 45 minutes hit here. So they're meeting an important need for this generation. We can't just dismiss that. We can't just expect them to go back to the linear because we've messed with them. You know, you're messed up with your parents. Well, you're messed up with the generation that, are they messed up? Maybe they're better off than we were because we were messed up with the generation before us. What do we do then when we start to come to this kind of thing? Well, what's happened as a result of this heart-hitting rather than head-hitting worship that the younger generation need because of their subjectivity? is that we've now got a whole industry of worship songs that we don't only sing on a Sunday morning, but we take home with us and we play in the car and we play over um, meals and all kinds of other things. And my concern as a pastor would be that there's market forces that drive that worship rather than pastoral needs that drive that worship. And so much as there are things to complain about and critique about our older hymns, A lot of our modern worship has been narrow in its focus and not perhaps with a robust enough theology in it or a variety of things that we need to have in our worship because our worship is not just praise to God but there's a whole other set of relationships going on around it. It's interesting in John Wittflitt's book um, Seeking Understanding Worship that he looks through Calvin's Psalters in the early days of the Reformation in Geneva. And he found that in those Psalters, there's only five Psalms chosen that are of praise and worship, that most of them are actually about confession or wisdom and some lament. All kinds of relationships going on in worship that we need to consider when we come to put together an order of service that is going to pastorally meet the needs of who I look out at on a panorama of pastoral needs right now. All different. As we prayed in that last prayer, some of us smiling because of last week, some of us mourning because of last week, some of us excited about the things in the week ahead, and some of us terrified about the things of the week ahead. Every one of us sitting in every pew with a different situation in their journey with God and our connection with God through these songs needs to be able to illustrate to meet our connection, where we are. My friend Alan that I tell you about endlessly, who lost his wife at 23, a worship leader, who said that for six months there was nothing, nothing in the worship services that he was in that could in any way relate to what he was going through in his relationship with God at that point. He needed lament 
And everything was happy clappy and feely wheely. The scriptures and the Psalms particularly, and we read one today, and it's just full of all kinds of exciting things and different things and theology and catharsis and healing and soothing and hope. It's all in there and just a few verses, oh, for songs that would be written today with that kind of uh, compact theology as my calls it. The scripture never rushes away or turns its face from these issues that I see in the panorama as I look around the church this morning. Whatever it is that we're going through, wherever we are in that journey of faith, the Psalms particularly deals with all of it. If we want to praise God and shout to God for all his goodness, it's there. If we want to scream at God because of the injustice, it's there. If we need to find forgiveness, if we need to find sense, if we need to just have a period where we just need to say we can't find sense, which is important, then it's all right there in the Psalms. Lament is so vital and I believe so lacking in many of the more modern worship songs. I um, put something up about this in my blog this week and Philip Orr came in on uh, Twitter and said, yes, Steve, elegy, lament, the cross we bear, angry sorrow, despair, unanswered prayers, unvanquished injustice. It's all there in the scriptural way to worship. And the modern industry has problems because maybe it's guided more by the culture than anything else. Martin Smith, who would be one of Uh, the more famous um, in a band called Delirious um, Modern Worship Writers. He wrote, I think, a very very powerful hymn, worship song called Our God Reigns a number of years ago. And it starts as they're driving into, I think, Uganda, into kind of the midst of all kinds of HIV dilemmas. And they sing about this kind of world and then they come back into London and they sing about image and all the things that grab the attention of young people and the difficulties that it is to live in this world. And then the chorus brings it into, in the midst of all this, we can find a God who reigns above it. But it was there. It was dirty. It was earthy. It was Psalm-like. And I was sharing this with a worship-leading friend, and they said, aye, but you know what they've done in the churches? They've got rid of all the verses. They just sing the chorus, because maybe we don't want to deal with the uncomfortable things. Maybe we don't want to deal with the discomfort. Maybe it's not easy to take up our cross Maybe it's not easy to deny ourselves. Maybe we don't want worship songs to challenge us with that as we listen to them on the way to work in the morning. So what am I saying? Ranting certainly about one of my favorite topics, but what am I saying? Well, here's one of the things I'm saying. This needs to be heard across the horizon. I'm not taking a knock at the worship that happens here. I don't choose any of the worship songs. Don't give me any glory for that. But the worship songs that are chosen here, we are very fortunate because we have people who are discerning, people who are dieticians, people who do see the need of the variety, people who do see the need of even change in the musical sound as as we go through services. And many times on a Sunday morning, I am delighted that when I get to here, I can think this could be a stinker of a sermon, but there's going to be lots of blessing in that service because the band or David and Ruth, or David and Richard, and Oz, or Maureen, or whoever was leading, have taken us into some real ministry. So this is not a knock at what we're at. But it's here to tell us the power of what this is, because maybe like that minister who said that was the warm-up, maybe we haven't thought about it. Maybe when you go away on a Sunday morning and you say, you know, Stockman was a bit ropey this morning, you need to realize that the ropey bit, which you might call the sermon, 
was supplemented by some of the songs we sung or why we sung them and what the words are in those and how those minister to us. Fitfleet talks about songs as our soul food. I talk about the songs, I talk about all music as we need to have healthy songs. Songs for a healthy soul. And Fitfleet talks about songs as soul food. So he says that we need a good diet. We don't need 45 minutes of whatever. We need 45 minutes that's different. This morning we've had declaration. We've had time to come and lament. We've had time to declare things. We've had time to learn things. All kinds of different things that have been going on in the songs that have been chosen. What we need are good diets. What we need are good dietitians. But we also need, if we have good diets and good dietitians, we need people who come for soul food who are looking for a good diet. Who are saying, what's in this service? Am I engaging with this service? Or am I just going through the motions? Am I just singing this because it is a stand-up time? And we'll wait until we get to the sermon, then we'll critique that and we'll go home. Or is that from the moment we say, welcome, every word on the screen, off the screen, is that a compacted theology? Is that a chance for confession? Is that a chance for wisdom? Is that a chance for catharsis? Is that a chance for us to have come out of the world for a time of refuge and in a moment or two be sent back into the world? Are we going to be nurtured by the songs that we sing? I was at another worship service a number of years ago. It was fine. Um, Some nice praise songs. I do say I get a bit confused when there's three in a row and they've just flicked the lines around. And I think, did I not sing those words in the last song with a different tune? Sometimes, what did we write that one for? But but it it was fine. It was good. There was a sense of certainly hit, heart hit. But as we were going with the thing, I kept asking myself, what is it that's lacking here? What is it? that I'm not quite sort of, there's something I'm suspicious about. And I came to conclude that as we were singing for this period of time, that the songs were, if you like, going into a cul-de-sac. It was all praise and worship. It was all going to God. And God's the center of what we do here. I'm not, please help me understand, I'm not taking him out of that. But the psalmist, there's all kinds of other things happening. All kinds of other relationships with God at the center of it. And there was something that was going up to God, but that's where it was staying. It wasn't coming back down to us. And it seems to me that as we look at worship in the scriptures, as we look at the Psalms, as we look at those early hymns from Colossians chapter 1 or Philippians chapter 2 or in Revelation or whatever else, that there's something going on where these songs, if they're a whistling in the dark, are not going out into the darkness, but there's something that's reflecting back into our lives to energize us, to sustain us, to soothe us for the sending out. So the worship songs that we need in a Sunday morning are not songs that will be sent up into a cul-de-sac, but that they will be songs that as they go to God, they will be brought back to us so that we will be sent out through the highway of Monday morning. So our worship songs to catechize us, to heal us, to restore us, to forgive us, to enable us and energize us to leave here with missional intent. Satan's kingdom must come down, ushering in the kingdom of God. That's what we need to be doing. 
Now, as we're listening to those things and all the dilemmas, let's remember that we need to hit the heart of the new generation. But what I'm saying is we need to have something in there for the thinking and the theologizing too. So we've tried here, and I think there have been songs written even here, that have tried to touch the heart and the subjective of this generation, but give some objectivity into it, some foundation to the words that we're singing so that we can mix the generations. Not all of us will be pleased. Not all of us will be happy with what's chosen. But we need to come not with a, am I happy with what's chosen? To a, what is the spiritual food that's on the screen that I can use in my diet to become a healthy soul to serve God in the world? Let's pray. Lord, if songs are the sole food for the people of God, then to be a church musician, a chooser of hymns, or a singer of hymns, we need to be aware of the diet. We need dietitians, and we need people who are prepared to eat what the dietitians give. So we pray for us here in Fitzroy. We pray for those as they rotate week after week, who choose the worship songs. Give them discernment and wisdom. Give them guidance and pastoral care. Help them to lead us in these songs. And as we come to sing, may we engage in such a way that we realize that this is a time in our service that it goes up to God and comes back down to us and then out into the world. Help us to be discerning, engaged, and may our worship hit our heart May it be real and warm and relevant, but also underneath it, compacted theology to mold us and to shape us into the people of God that you want us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.